Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. Big E here. This is law for Virginia law enforcement officers. And we're talking about law. What do you need to know as a law enforcement officer in the Commonwealth of Virginia to better protect and serve your communities and to strengthen your communities? This is episode 51. And we're talking today about a case that came out last week, or excuse me, a couple weeks ago, called Coniglia versus Strom. And I talked about it last week in the episode, episode 50. I want to talk about it some more in this case. This is in this in this episode. Uh, this is a case that's been a lot on my mind lately, and I'm not the only one who's been thinking a lot about this case. Uh, I got a call from a listener last week who really wanted to talk about this, especially with respect to the new search warrant statute, uh, and we're going to talk about that today. But you can also see in a case called Sa- uh, Sanders versus United States, which just came out last week that Justice Kavanaugh from the U.S. Supreme Court has been thinking a lot about this too. And so we're going to talk about this case uh, today. Now, you might remember Coniglia versus Strom is the case that uh, the Supreme Court took up, or excuse me, handed down a a ruling on just about at the end of May. And it's a case where, to summarize, basically, um, police had responded to uh, Coniglia's house because his wife had asked for help. He had uh, put a gun in front of her and said, go ahead and shoot me, get this over with. She said, no. Uh, police show up at the house. They talk to Mr. Coniglia. They say, hey, look, I think you need some help. He says, yeah, I probably do. Uh, they convince him to go seek uh, psychiatric help, and then they go inside the house and they seize his guns. And he sues the police under the Fourth Amendment. The lower court rules that the law enforcement officers had the uh, authority to enter the house under the community caretaker doctrine, which previously had really only been applied to vehicles and not to houses. Like if you found a gun in a car, you could seize that gun. And uh, if the car is just abandoned in the middle of the street, doors are open, you see a gun on the you know floorboard of the car, you can clearly seize that gun just for community safety, for community caretaker purposes. Uh, but here they extend that to the home and the U.S. Supreme Court says, you know what, uh, whatever that doctrine is, it doesn't apply to the home. And so they reverse that and send that case back to the lower courts. So that's the ruling in that case. And as I talked about in that case, there was a lot of, you saw in that case, even though it was a unanimous ruling, nine to zero, you saw the justices really struggling with, okay, we can all agree that this entry was not permitted under the Fourth Amendment under the community caretaker doctrine. But, you know, what happens when law enforcement approach a house and have uh, probable cause or a strong reason to believe that somebody's inside who's been hurt. And this was really troubling for some of the judges. They wrote long concurring opinions that really had nothing to do with the Rhode Island case with the officers and the guy with the gun, but had a lot to do with what is the authority of police when they get to a house and they think somebody's hurt inside the house. And they write these really long concurring opinions. I mean, Justice Thomas's opinion is only four pages. But so that's what I want to talk about today. Uh, and, and I want to start with this case, Sanders versus United States, because you can see that that Coniglia really stuck with Justice Kavanaugh. This was a case that the, uh, the, the where they sought an appeal, uh, where Mr. Uh, Sanders sought an appeal from the uh, from the ruling of the lower courts, and the U.S. Supreme Court didn't rule in his case. There's a, there, you know, you're not going to find this on the main website of rulings, but instead they sent the case back to the lower courts and said, hey, look, we just ruled on a similar case called Coniglia versus Strom. You, lower court, you should reconsider your ruling based upon our ruling. 
So what happens in Sanders? Sanders is really interesting. So Sanders is a case where officers, this is a very common, very, very common scenario. So you've probably had this scenario too, right? You respond to a house uh, for a domestic call. Here, there's a fight going on and people say, hey, will you come in? Will you come? Now, we don't know if it's a physical fight or a verbal fight. The recall that the argument is, uh, is, is something and the caller says uh, they're fighting really bad. Please, somebody come help. So you can hear arguments. You don't know if anybody's hurt. You show up at the scene and police respond to the scene and see somebody in the window acting really excited and gesturing. And then the apparent victim comes outside of the house and they say, hey, look, are you okay? Um, she's got red marks on her face. She's got red marks on her neck. She appears to be upset. She's clearly, uh, she's crying. And she says, you know, uh, I'm okay. She doesn't, well, I mean, she doesn't say I'm okay, like I haven't been hurt, but they can see that she's not currently being attacked, right? Um, and they say, hey, look, we need to talk to the other party. Where is he? And she says, well, he's inside. I can get him for you. They walk towards the front of the house and they can hear a child crying inside. At that point, they enter inside the house. They can see an infant in the playpen. And so they go upstairs to find the, um, to find the, uh, to find the suspect and also to find this other child, the child who they'd seen inside gesturing and moving around and stuff inside the house because they could see that he was really excited and gesturing, uh, not the suspect, but this other child. So they go to find the other child, they find the suspect, and they see a gun and they arrest a bad guy for possessing a gun. So the this case goes on appeal to the Eighth Circuit and the Eighth Circuit says officers were uh, had the authority to do this under the community caretaker doctrine. Well, the U.S. Supreme Court has just ruled in Coniglia that the community caretaker doctrine doesn't apply in houses. So they say, your ruling, you examine this case and you rule based on the community caretaker doctrine, that's not a real thing. You're going to have to go back and look at this case again. Okay, fair enough. But the question is, was the Eighth Circuit right or wrong? In other words, did the officers have authority to enter the house or not? And that's the question the Eighth Circuit now has to go back and decide again. And clearly, right, they're going to have to consider not community caretaker, but exigent circumstances, right? Is this an is this authority to enter the house under exigent circumstances? Because again, as we've always said, there's only three ways into a house, right? Legally, there is consent, exigent circumstances, or a search warrant. We don't have consent, we don't have exigent circumstances, so do we have a search warrant here? I mean, so do we, do we, we don't have consent or, or a search warrant, do we have exigent circumstances? And Justice Kavanaugh, when he write, and very rarely do, do the judges write opinions when cases are simply remanded for the new ruling. So this is unusual that he would write. But he writes this opinion and he says, look, we're sending this case back down for a new ruling, but that doesn't mean that the Eighth Circuit was wrong. It just means that they need to reconsider the case under the exigent circumstances doctrine. And he writes, of particular relevance here, the court has long said that police officers can enter a home without a warrant if they have objectively reasonable basis for believing that an occupant is seriously injured or threatened with such an injury. And so he makes a point to sort of say, you know, hint, hint to the exit to the Eighth Circuit, you should really you know, that you're not wrong, you just decided it on the wrong reason. So reconsider it, maybe it's an exigent circumstance. And, uh, and I want to get to another issue that a caller this week called in and talked to me about, but I want to spend some time talking about what Justice Kavanaugh is saying here. Justice Kavanaugh, when he writes this opinion, cites to a case called Brigham City versus Stewart. 
And Brigham City versus Stewart is another is a case that is not really from that long ago. It's 2006, but it's a similar kind of case. It's a case where officers are responding to a call. Here it's for a noise complaint, so nothing quite so serious. But when they get to the scene, they can see in through a window that there is a fight break that's broken out inside the house. And there's four adults and one juvenile, and the four adults are beating on the juvenile. The juvenile um, is, uh, is, is able to break free. He swings a fist and strikes one of the adults. Um, that at that point, one of the adults spits blood into a sink because of the fight. They again are, are trying to restrain the juvenile. They're trying to knock him against a, a refrigerator to hold him in place, and the refrigerator is starting to move. So at this point, the officers just you know make entry and secure. So is that an exigent circumstance? Well, before we talk about the ruling, and I think you're not going to be surprised, the court finds it's an exigent circumstance. I want you to notice that this case took place in, and this case was was ruled upon by the U.S. Supreme Court in 2006. And what I think is interesting about this ruling is not the result, because obviously it's an exigent circumstance, but that it wasn't decided until, we didn't have a case like this until 2006. And when you consider how Coniglia versus Strom, you have the U.S. Supreme Court struggling with you know, well, what would happen, for example, if you got a call, and we talked about this last week, uh, that, hey, um, Mr. Jones hasn't come to work today, or he hasn't come to church today, he hasn't come to uh, tennis today, he's always on time, he's never missed, he's never been out of contact, we've called him, we called him, we called him, we no answer, we drove past his house, his car was there, so clearly he's inside, but he's not answering, he's not showing up, we're really worried about him, and so you respond for a welfare check. Is that an exigent circumstance? Does that give you, constitutionally, could you enter that house without a warrant? I mean, you couldn't get a warrant, right, because there's no crime, so what are you going to get a search warrant for? You don't have his consent, but on the other hand, I'm sure if you asked him, if he was inside the house and, you know, he'd fallen and he'd broken his hip or he couldn't move, uh, he would love for you to come inside the house if that's what's going on inside the house. So is that an exigent circumstance? Is it exigent if you get the call after four hours, after six hours, after 12 hours, 24? Right, that's what we talked about last week. Here, Brigham City, that decision, that case doesn't come up until 2006, until about 15 years ago. Supreme Court has to consider what happens if officers show up and see a fight going on inside of a house. Is that exigent circumstance to enter? Obviously, the court says it's an exigent circumstance, and they affirm. But uh, that ruling that they make overrules a ruling from the Utah Supreme Court, because the Utah Supreme Court had said that was not an exigent circumstance that there was no serious injury going on. Uh, and so just because there was a fight going on, officers, they thought, should have gotten a search warrant. Um, so anyway, the U.S. Supreme Court overrules them. And they and the U.S. Supreme Court says, you know, we've long said that you can enter into a house uh, without a search warrant in an exigent circumstance in case you're, if you're concerned about destruction of evidence or maybe there's a fire going on uh, or you're in hot pursuit of a subject. Um they're, so here, they're extending it to, uh, they're saying law enforcement officers can enter a home without a warrant to render emergency assistance to an injured occupant or to protect an occupant from imminent injury. And that's sort of the rule that you get out of Brigham City, that you can enter a home without a warrant to render emergency assistance to an injured occupant or protect an occupant from imminent injury. And that brings us then to another case that takes place a few years later, uh, and this is a ruling from the U.S. Supreme Court in 2009 called Michigan versus Fisher. And in Michigan versus Fisher, 
uh, there, you don't have, th this is a little bit, a little bit closer to uh, the case that we talked about, Sanders versus United States, that the court just sent back to the Eighth Circuit. Here in Michigan versus Fisher, officers respond to a call, again, for help from uh, bystanders who say, hey, there's somebody inside of a house who's going crazy. And that's literally what they, you know, they going, he's going crazy. Officers show up and they see outside the house all this chaos. They can see a pickup in the driveway. The front of the pickup is smashed. There's damaged fence posts along the property. There's three broken windows in the house. There's glass still on, outside of the, uh, on, on the ground outside of the house. There's blood on the hood of the pickup. There's blood on clothes inside of the pickup truck. And there's blood on one of the doors to the house. They look, in, they look at the house, and inside the house, they can see one person, this guy Fisher, and he's screaming and he's throwing things. Um, the, there is no one else that they can see inside the house, but they don't know if anybody else is inside the house. They go to try the door, and there's a couch that's blocking the front door of the house. So at this point, uh, the officers demand that he open the door. He refuses to answer. They can see that he's got a cut on his hand. And they say, hey, look, man, will you just let us come in? And he says, no, go get a search warrant. And at that point, officers force their way in. Again, very much like the case Sanders that just got sent back to the 8th Circuit. Officers come inside, see a gun. He can't have a gun. He gets prosecuted. So uh, here, the trial court again says this was not an exigent circumstance. This officers should have left and gotten a warrant. And the um, Michigan Supreme Court ultimately uh, takes up the case and they find that the that the um, that the officer's entry into the house was a violation of the Fourth Amendment as well. So the U.S. Supreme Court takes the case and the U.S. Supreme Court here, again, you're not going to be surprised, finds that this is an exigent circumstance in this case, right? And they look back to the Brigham City case, which just a few years ago, and they find that here um, the officer's arrived, saw what they had an objective basis for believing that medical assistance is necessary for somebody inside of the house, um, that there was a potential danger to somebody inside of the house, either to Mr. Fisher himself or to somebody else based on the facts that they saw outside the house, and therefore that the entry into the house was lawful. Um, again, Fisher is throwing things, he's screaming, they can't see if anybody else is inside the house, but it's logical to conclude that there uh, could be, there, you know, there was likely that there was somebody inside the house who was the target of Fisher's attacks, or uh, if, if there wasn't a human target, that Fisher himself was hurting himself and that he was in danger. And again, here you've got, you know, blood on the car and blood in the clothes and blood on Fisher and he's cut. So lots of reasons to think this is an exigent circumstance. So... Uh, this brings us then to, uh, you know, how, what about Virginia? What has happened in Virginia where you have similar kinds of situations? Now, when I've come out and done training, you guys probably remember we've talked about Kyer versus Commonwealth. And Kyer versus Commonwealth is a good cautionary case. It comes out in 2005, so a year before Brigham City. And in Kyer versus Commonwealth, officers are patrolling a neighborhood. They can see that there's a door open at 4 o'clock in the morning, a back door to a house open at 4 o'clock in the morning. And they say, oh, somebody must be breaking into that house. Well, why? Well, because it's 4 o'clock in the morning and the door is wide open and lights are on. So the conclusion from the officers is, well, it doesn't make sense that the door is open at 4 o'clock in the morning and the lights are on, so it must mean that the house is being broken into. 
And in that case, the court says, no, that's not enough reason to believe that that's an exigent circumstance. It's not enough reason to enter into the house. All you have is a back door with the lights on. Um, and, you know, it's a high crime area, but that's it. There's no other indication of a burglary. But, you know, clearly there's a, a range between Kyer, where this is just door open, and cases like Michigan versus Fisher or Brigham City. And there are, in Virginia, other cases that gives a lot more information. And in particular, um, there's two cases. One is a case called Hill versus Commonwealth, which is a case from 1994 from the Court of Appeals. And in Hill versus Commonwealth, officers respond uh, because the this is in Danville, where the neighbors say, hey, look, will you come check out this house? The door is open, and that's really unusual. And it's unusual to us because we know the occupant of the house is out traveling. He's been gone for a couple of days. The front door to his house shouldn't be open. And so officers respond to the house, and they can see, in fact, that the door is open, just like the neighbors have said. They ring the doorbell. Three to four minutes, they're now they're knocking, they're banging on the door. There's no response. There's no response. Uh, they go inside. They search through the house, um, and ultimately they find a bunch of drugs and they prosecute him. Um, the court here, in this case, says here you've got a report that he's been out of town and the door is open. And the neighbor says, "Hey, look, I think this house has been broken into." That's more evidence than you had in Kyer versus Commonwealth. And again, the court says this is exigent. You can't just leave and go get a search warrant. Um, there's only, you know, one or two officers in the scene. You can't guard this property and send one officer away. Uh, that requires an immediate warrantless entry. And so the officers did have the authority to enter that house, right? So there you have a little bit more than Kyer versus Commonwealth. You don't quite have what you have in Fisher and in Brigham City, which is actually seeing violence going on, but it's enough to enter into the house. And we see the same thing in Washington versus Commonwealth, which is a case from 2012. And Washington versus, a Com versus Commonwealth is a case, I kind of love the facts of this case, and I think we've talked about it with some of you guys in the trainings before. Um, officers respond to a burglary. They find the house has been burglarized. Somebody reports, hey, look, somebody broke into our house. Officers respond, see the burglary, see the evidence of the burglary. Uh, but they find footprints in the snow leading away from the burglary. They follow the footprints in the snow, and it leads them to another residence. It's an uninterrupted path all the way up to this new residence. So they get to the next residence where the footprints lead to, and again, they announce their, their presence, they bang on the door, there's no response, and so they decide to enter the house without a search warrant. And again, they find a bunch of stolen property and Washington response. Washington eventually shows up to the house and they're like, hey, what's up? And he's like, what's up with what? I don't know. I didn't break into any houses. They're like, well, we didn't mention anything about breaking into houses. So you might need to think about what, you know, think about the next thing that you say because you're about, you're, you're about to get in a lot of trouble. And the court here again says this is a lawful search, lawful entry into a house under exigent circumstances. Um, here again, the court says, hey, look, you know, you, you can obviously worried about destruction of evidence or hot pursuit or, you know, a house on fire that's currently burning and people are in danger. Um, here, the officers had probable cause to believe that the house had been uh, broken into and they reasonably suspected the burglar might still be in the house. And so the house called for immediate prompt action. And so it was proper for the officers to enter into this house. In this case, the Fourth Amendment gave them the authority to, to do so. So um, you can see that there's a real range of cases under exigent circumstances where you get to the door and you're, worried, you're concerned. And as far as that question of, well, you know, how many 
hours after or is there a time after which you get that call that says hey look i think that there's a problem um at so-and-so's house i think so-and-so might be in danger you know can you go in after two hours can you go after six hours can you go in after 24 hours or 36 hours um you know you have this uh, that hill case i talked about where the neighbor just says hey look guy's been gone for two days front door of the house is open can you go check it out and they respond who knows how long that door has been open, but the court says that's still an exigent circumstance, even though we have no idea whether that door was kicked open you know, five minutes ago or uh, 24 hours ago. We have no idea. And that kind of brings us to the question that I got this week from uh, a caller who called in and said, hey, look, I've got um, you know, a question about what do you do when you have a search warrant in hand and you're following the new search warrant statute, and you're planning to knock, announce your presence, wait a reasonable period of time, and then enter into the house, but something happens uh, whereby you are no longer able to stop, knock, announce your presence, and enter without a great deal of danger, and you need to make a no-knock entry because of some exigent circumstance. And maybe the no-knock, and uh, maybe it's because, you know, as you're approaching the house to serve the warrant, the resident uh, comes out of the house, sees you, draws a firearm, and uh, quickly runs back inside the house. Uh, at that point, you know, you're not gonna you're gonna chase after that person, and you're not gonna stop at the threshold, knock on the door, wait a reasonable time for the person to give peaceful entry and enter, right? this point he's just barric obviously barricading himself or destroying evidence it's a dangerous situation now tactically speaking you may make a decision hey look we need to stop right now we need to um you know stop and uh, uh pull back and create a perimeter until it's safe and go in why are we running after this guy but you for whatever reason you have to make in this situation let's say you're making the tactical judgment i gotta go in and get this guy uh, i gotta chase after him well you know, what happens? The, co the the code says that if you do not stop, knock, announce your presence, wait a reasonable time for, for peaceful entry, uh, and then only then after, thereafter enter, that there's, the evidence is not admissible in court. So uh, what does that mean for you as an officer? Well, I'll take you back to the debate about that very subject before the House Courts of Justice Committee, because this topic came up. I mean, they realized they realized enough that that was a problem. Somebody mentioned, you know, there was a witness I can't remember, or one of the um, one of the minority senators uh, said, you know, hey, look, if we pass this, officers are going to end up in a situation where they're going to have to make uh, warrantless, excuse me, uh, they're going to have to make um, exigent no-knock entries sometimes because of a great deal of danger. Aren't we just saying that at that point that the evidence is inadmissible, even though they had to do it? And the response from the advocates of the bill was, no, no, no. In that situation, officers wouldn't be entering on the authority of the warrant at all. They would be entering due to an exigent circumstance. In other words, officers would have the warrant in hand. So in 19, they'd be following 19.254. But then when, as they're approaching the house, suddenly some exigent circumstance takes place. And now, essentially, you're putting the warrant to the side and saying, I'm going to make an entry now, not with this warrant, but because of the exigent circumstance that's just arisen. And because it's an exigent entry, I'm not going to knock, announce my presence, wait a reasonable period of time and enter. Now, that theory proposed by the 
members of the Courts of Justice Committee who were in favor of this bill is not something that the Virginia Supreme Court or Court of Appeals or U.S. Supreme Court or anybody has ever really ruled on before because, well, frankly, we've never had a rule in Virginia that said that if you uh, if you if you didn't knock an your President, wait a reasonable time that the evidence was an admissible period. End of story. Right. We've had a knock and announce rule for a long time, but um, it's never said, you know, well, what happens if there's an exigency? We've never had quite the situation before. But the closest analogy we have is a case called Commonwealth versus Campbell. And it's a case from 2017. Commonwealth versus Campbell also involves a violation of 19.254. And it's a violation that the statute says, if you violate 19.254 in this way, no evidence is admissible. So it's very similar to the current situation that we have. In Commonwealth versus Campbell, though, the violation of the statute was not the way that it was served. It was the way it was filed with the clerk's office. Um, something went wrong. This was a case where officers had a methamphetamine uh, search warrant. They show up to a methamphetamine to, to serve the warrant, and a me an active cook is going on. They're actually cooking methamphetamine on the scene. The officers rush in. They serve the search warrant. They seize the evidence. Um, motion to suppress is denied. They go to the Court of Appeals. But what happens after they serve the search warrant and after they do everything they need to do for some reason, something happens between the magistrate and the clerk's office where the search warrant itself never actually reaches the clerk's office. This is not the officer's fault. Uh, but the code says that the officers can correct this for up to 30 days afterwards. But at the point that this happens, no one realizes that the search warrant isn't actually filed with the, with the, with the, clerk, uh, court, with the court clerk until like a year after the case is over. And the code says if that happens... Uh, it seems to say, if that happens, that uh, the evidence isn't admissible at all in court. That's the argument, at least the Court of Appeals has, that if you don't file, if the, court, if the actual search warrant itself is not filed with the clerk within 30 days, uh, that the evidence is not admissible. And the Court of Appeals suppresses the evidence. The Commonwealth appeals uh, and goes to the Supreme Court of Virginia. And what the Supreme Court of Virginia does in this case is quite interesting. They say, you know, we're not going to consider whether the evidence was admissible or inadmissible under the search warrant because we don't really need to consider that in this case. In this case, we're not going to treat this as a search warrant case at all, even though the officers had a search warrant. And the reason we're not going to treat it as a search warrant case is because the officers also had exigent circumstances and, in fact, appeared to be acting because of the exigent circumstances and not just directly because of the search warrant. Because when they show up at the scene to serve the search warrant, suddenly they show up and they can see this is active methamphetamine cook going on. And they had talked about in court about how uh, how dangerous a methamphetamine cook is. You're basically making a bomb and at any moment it could explode and hurt people. And so the officers needed to rush in and secure the scene as soon as possible. And so the court says, you know what? Yeah, they had a warrant. Maybe it was done right. Maybe it was done wrong. Maybe if we were relying on the warrant, the evidence should have been suppressed. Maybe it shouldn't have been. Doesn't really matter in this case because here the officers had exigent circumstances and that made their search of the house uh, lawful. Excuse me, that, that made, that made their, their search lawful. And so the U.S. Supreme, excuse me, Virginia Supreme Court reversed and sent the case back to Halifax County. So what does that mean for you, right? I mean, remember that really has to be an exigent circumstance here. Um, 
you know, I caution everybody, exigency really does mean emergency. It doesn't just mean, uh, you know, there's a gun and therefore there's an exigency. Um, I always, whenever I teach exigent circumstances, like to remind people of Commonwealth versus Robertson, which is another US, uh, Virginia Supreme Court case where officers have a, a standoff with a barricaded suspect who has a gun and has a hostage. Um, and it's another Danville case. There's, you know, there he's drunk. He's got his girlfriend hostage. Uh, they have a standoff with him. Finally, he releases the hostage. Um, he's got this uh, shot. He's got this shotgun, and um, they, um, you know, he he's there's all these claims that he's you know hurt somebody or whatever. But ultimately, they figure out he's the only one in the house. He's let everybody else go. He's just sitting there with the gun. They've got the standoff with him. Now. Ultimately, they get him to drop the gun. He drops the gun inside the house, but now he's unarmed. He's on the windowsill of the house uh, or something like a windowsill. They tase him. He falls on the ground outside the house. They take him in custody. They, again, they confirm there's nobody else inside the house. And now they decide, okay, we want to go inside the house and seize that gun. Now, the question here is, is it an exigent circumstance? Well, there's nobody else inside the house. He's secured. They've got lots of officers in the scene because it's been a barricade. So they got the SWAT team and commanders and all these people. So there's no, it's not a situation like where there's just one or two officers in the scene. There's a ton of officers. So they can, and they've been on the scene for hours. So they could clearly secure this house. So what's the emergency? What is the urge? What is the need to, uh, to go inside this house without a warrant? And that's always sort of the core in an exigent circumstance situation. Could I just secure this house? from the outside and go get a warrant because if I can and it doesn't in any way increase any danger to anyone for me to just simply okay let's hold this scene I'm going to get a warrant then it's not an exigent circumstance you have to be able to articulate hey look I couldn't go do that because x y and z because there's only two of us or there's only one of us um, this is a huge house and I can't watch all these things or there's a fight going on there's somebody right now I can see there's somebody in danger right now uh, you know that kind of thing there's something that says I can't stop and go get a warrant and, you know, this Robertson case that I just talked about is a 2008 case. Uh, the Campbell versus Commonwealth case I talked about is a 2017 case. Michigan versus Fisher, Fisher that I talked about is 2009. Brigham City versus Stewart is 2006. Um, you know, these cases, Washington's a 2012 case. These cases that I've talked about are really recent cases. And that really shows how much this is a cutting edge issue even though law enforcement officers in the United States, I guarantee have been dealing with this kind of question since there have been law enforcement, since there were law enforcement officers, you know, since officers were, you know, riding horseback in the country and, you know, heard out a cry in the wilderness and went to a house and found to go to a house, right? This is a question that's probably come up as long as we've had law enforcement. And yet we're still struggling to come up with rules. Um, and even from the U.S. Supreme Court. So it is a challenging area, but I think everyone who's a law enforcement officer needs to think about these things before they happen, because when they happen, it's going to be too late. You're going to have to make a decision right there on the scene. So think about, you know, just as you would with a self-defense situation or an emergency situation, what would I do in this situation? How would I handle it? What do you think the rules are? So today, that's all I got for you. Uh, if you like the podcast, tell your friends. If you don't like the podcast, don't tell your friends. Uh, we're on Stitcher. Uh, we're on Apple Podcasts. We're on SoundCloud. I hope that's useful. If you want me to add it to another app, let me know. But for today, that's all from me. That's all from Big E. Stay safe and don't get captured.